All right, would you stand now for the reading of God's Word? I'm going to read from 1 Peter chapter 1, only verses 1 through 2 this morning. Uh, young disciples, if you're with us this morning and some of the language sounds a little weird to you, I'm going to use the word exile a lot. Um, you can replace that with stranger. That might be an easier word to sort of get your arms around. Maybe a good question for you as you engage with us is, why does Peter think it's so important that we know ourselves as strangers? Why does he call us strangers and why is that important for us? Let me read now from God's Word, chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verses 1 through 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we pray that um, as we sit under your word, all of us, um, as we hear you, and we pray, God, that you would do what we've just read, that you would multiply grace and peace to us this morning. In the name of your Son, amen. So I want to begin this morning by breaking a cardinal rule of public speaking. I want to start by reading an excerpt from a book. Okay, so it's going to demand a little bit of work on your end already this morning to kind of get up there with me. So I'm going to read an excerpt. This is how the author begins his book. This is chapter one, first words. My daughter has just turned six. Sometime over the next year or so, She will discover that her parents are weird. We are weird because we go to church. As she gets older, there'll be voices telling her exactly what that means, getting louder and louder, until by the time she's a teenager, they'll be shouting right in her ear. Being a Christian means that we believe in a load of Bronze Age absurdities. She'll hear that it means that we don't believe in dinosaurs, that we are dogmatic and self-righteous, We fetishize uh, pain and suffering, and we offer the oppressed pie in the sky when they die. That we uphold the nuclear family with all its micro-tyrannies and imprisoning stereotypes. That we think anyone who disagrees with us is going to roast for all eternity. That we oppose freedom, human rights, individual moral autonomy, a woman's right to choose, stem cell research the teaching of evolutionary biology, that we oppose modernity, that we oppose progress, that we teach people to hate their natural selves, that we are the villains in history on the wrong side of every struggle for human liberty, that we've provided pious cover stories for racism, imperialism, wars of conquest, slavery, exploitation, that we want people to feel ashamed, that we want people to feel afraid, that we prefer scripture to novels, certainty to doubt, faith to reason, law to mercy, censorship to debate, silence to eloquence, and death to life. He goes on and on on that path (laughs) for about two more pages, and then he writes this, but hey, that's not the bad news. 
Those are the objections of people who really care enough about religion to object to it. No, the really painful message that our daughter will receive as she grows up is that we as her parents are embarrassing. Star Trek fans and vampire wannabes have nothing on us. We actually get down on our knees and worship. That excerpt comes from an award-winning British author who happens to be a Christian, doesn't write Christian books, but this particular work is sort of his self-identification in his culture as, um, as a follower of Jesus Christ. It's also, and it's a funny book, it's his winsome attempt to show his own friends and the friends in his broader culture how Christianity resonates with our everyday emotional experience of reality. Don't agree with all of his conclusions, but that's where he is. Now, I want to tell you why I read that. I read it really for the first line. I just wanted you to hear the rest of it too. I read it because of the first line that says, my daughter has just turned six and she will soon find that her parents are weird. We are weird because we are people of faith. Now, there's little doubt that uh, where he lives in Western Europe, Christianity is much more of a relic than it is to us here in the Bible Belt, the buckle of the Bible Belt in Dallas, Texas. We still give a respectful nod to Christianity for the most part. As Flannery O'Connor once said, we're at least maybe Christ-haunted, if not Christ-centered. We still feel the sense of obligation to nod to Christianity. But even then, I bet that something in what I read rang true for you. I bet that you felt a little bit of the weight of what I read. What is that feeling? That feeling is the growing distance and dissonance between historic Christian belief and uh, our larger world, the assumptions of our larger culture. Um, people tell us that we're probably growing a little more weird. <laughs> people of faith are growing a little bit more on the fringe. Now I want to give you another example. My wife and I are a part of a small group of friends here at our church. Um, same basic age and stage. Most of us have young kids. We're all staring up at 40 pretty soon. The new 25, so don't, don't feel sorry for us. Um, our small group met um, a few weeks ago to discuss Mark's sermon, and one of the questions he wanted us to discuss was this. Where do you personally feel like a sojourner? Where do you feel like a stranger? And one of the women in our group spoke up and she said something to this effect. She said, I'll do my best to summarize. She said, having young kids in school has generated awesome social occasions with other moms. And she really meant this. It's been great getting to know them. Incredibly friendly, incredibly welcoming, incredibly warm. But in our conversations, even over years now, I've realized that there is a line in the sand that we are just not invited to cross. There are questions that we are not always welcome to pursue. And she said, it makes me really sad because beyond that line is the place where the real stuff happens. It's the place of, of intimacy, the place of our deepest joys and sorrows, the place where intimacy can happen. She said, that seems like to be a risk that we just seem unwilling to take. We are content instead to sort of swim on the surface and, um, and do our best to smile at whatever comes our way. Now, I, that may or may not resonate with you. It may, may not be your experience. I will tell you that those in our small group nodded along pretty, um, pretty strongly. But I just want you to hear that because she's, she's saying something very different than the excerpt I first read. What she's saying is that I feel the distance and dissonance not because I'm cast as a religious stereotype. Not because in my own community, my neighborhood thinks that I believe in convoluted, outdated, irrational things. But because I live in a place where we are terrified to let our guard down. 
It is a nice, pretty, safe, friendly world, but one in which it is really hard to be known. So on the one hand, you get like my daughter's six. She's going to grow to find that we're weird. We're weird because uh, we're people of faith. And then you get, I have a lot of friendly phrases around me, but it's hard to get at the center, excuse me, beyond the veneer uh, to the really, to the heart of joys and pains, to the heart of the matter. What do they have in common? Both of those stories are testimonies of estrangement. Estrangement. One is a growing sense of cultural marginalization that comes at least from the feeling that we are corporately being pushed from the center to the fringe of cultural life. The other is a growing sense of loneliness, that we are often being kept on the outside of the fringe of deep personal connection. Both are about feeling like you are on the outside of your place and on the outside of your relationships. And that is the feeling of exile. An exile is a displaced person, often materially, but also emotionally. Someone who senses that they are in fact wandering in a foreign land with an unrequited longing for home. And so when Peter begins his letter and he calls these early Christians exiles, that's exactly what they feel like. They feel like outsiders. And I just want to camp here this morning and I just want to talk about that experience because that experience is so central to everything else Peter is doing in his letter. And it has always been central to the calling of the church, to who we are in the world. Three questions I want us to pursue this morning together as we move particularly through this passage. Number one, why exile? It's true that you just don't wake up one morning in exile. That word always has a story to it. What is the story of our exile? Number two, what has God up to in it? Where does the gospel, where does the good news intersect with that word, particularly for us and for the world? And then finally, I want us to think about what is the purpose of our current exile? You'll notice that God, that Peter, that the Lord through Peter doesn't just call us exiles, he calls us elect exiles. And that means that there is intentionality or purpose over which God reigns to our exile. What is that purpose and how do we embrace it? Let's look at those three questions in turn. First, why exile? What is the story behind the word? In the Old Testament, that word is almost exclusively used in a negative sense. It is not a good thing to be in exile. And it is also almost exclusively used as a judgment of some kind. To be in exile means to be someone who is cursed. It's to be living out in curse. The prototype of all exile in the Bible is Genesis 3. You may be familiar with that story. Adam and Eve rebel against God, and God banishes them. He exiles them from Eden. Eden was the original home and the sanctuary of the human race. And that's really important because that original banishment becomes the legacy with which every man and woman and child from that point on must reckon. Our sin has made us wanderers. It has made us restless. It has made us strangers in a place that was always intended to be our home. Now listen, there are many other examples of exile throughout the Old Testament, but the most significant one beyond Eden is the banishment of God's covenant people from the land of Canaan. 
Canaan was the promised land given to God's people in His grace, and it was meant to be the new Eden. Canaan was supposed to be the new sanctuary, the place where God's people could flourish. But the condition, just like in Eden, remained the same for Canaan. The only way that Canaan would ever be home for the people of God is if they lived in obedience to Him. In fact, I want you to hear what God tells His people through Moses in Deuteronomy 30. This is before they ever get to Canaan. He warns them, and here's what He tells them. See, I have set before you life and good, death and evil. If you know Genesis 3, it sounds a lot like, excuse me, Genesis 2. It sounds a lot like Genesis 2. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, then you shall live. And you shall multiply, and the Lord Lord your God will bless you in the land. But if your heart turns away, you will perish. You will not live long in the land that I'm giving you. I call heaven and earth to witness against you that I have set before you this day life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, seems like a simple message, choose life. Choose life. For the Lord is your life in the length of your days, and you will dwell in the land. Now God is basically saying this, look, this will always be true. There is no home apart from obedience to me. Apart from obedience to me, all you will find is, uh, is restlessness and lowliness and estrangement. If you rebel, the curse of banishment and exile will fall upon you, and that is exactly what happens in the rest of the Old Testament. The north and the south divides, and both within 150 years of each other find themselves in exile from the land. They are banished from Canaan as the covenant curse falls upon them. That is the basic story behind the word. What I really want you to see is that in the Old Testament, exile is a curse. And it's a curse that not only falls upon the whole human race, but it's a curse that falls particularly on the people of God for the same reason. It is for our collective refusal to love the Lord as our life. The one who is the length of our days. Now, what does that mean for you this morning? Just this. It means that your loneliness has a story behind it. It means that your desire to feel settled has a story. It means that your restlessness, your wanderlust, your dissonance has a story that cannot be solved by a new promotion or a bigger house or a new romance. Our exile is bound up with God himself, with our creator. And so that is the place where reconciliation must happen in order for our exile to finally be resolved. So what is the story of the good news in all this? Where does the gospel come and intersect with that word? I want you to listen to another testimony now, a third one, one that I think you'll find familiar. It starts like this. Now when the child was born, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And the angel said, rise and take the child and his mother and flee in exile to Egypt. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Now 30 years later, a testimony about his own experience. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man, however, has nowhere to lay his head. From a close friend and an observer, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. 
He came to his own who were in the world, and his own people did not receive him. Or how about this one? This is to the author of the letter that we're reading, to Peter himself, who was one of his closest friends. He says, you will all fall away because of me. The shepherd will be stricken, and you will scatter, and you all will leave me alone. And then this, the final words of a dying man. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now you have no doubt at this point identified this exile. This is the testimony of Jesus Christ, the man who was born, who lived, and who died an outsider. And it's his death that is particularly important for us this morning because his death is the culmination of all of that estrangement. I want you to think for a moment, where did Jesus die? Remember where he died if you know the story? It's really important. He dies outside of the city gates, on a garbage heap, outside of civilization, on the very fringes of his culture. Who does he die with? He dies a criminal, an innocent one who's a criminal who dies between two other criminals outside the bonds of justice and friendship. And the Bible says in Galatians 4 that Jesus Christ dies a curse. He is hanged on a tree like cursed men are, and he dies there outside the affirmation and presence of God in heaven. How does the gospel connect with our exile? The gospel gives you primarily not a message but a person. The gospel gives you Jesus Christ who is the true exile, the true outsider, the truly forsaken one, and it says to us in our sin, God does, there was no way for me to solve your exile without sharing in it. There was no way for me ever to overcome the curse of your exile without succumbing to that curse myself. Here's the simple message that God so loved the world. He looked out and so loved the world, not because the world loved him. God so loved the world that he gave. He gave. His highest treasure, his only son, for what purpose? Paul says in Ephesians 2 that you should no longer be strangers and foreigners and exiles, but that now you are a part of the home of God. And even more, Paul's able to say, look, this intensifies things. God is actually going to come and make his home in you by the power of his spirit. Home has been given to you once again. Now listen, it's a beautiful story. Um, But I want to show you this morning as we close how all of this, how the love of God for you and reclaiming you is actually incredibly practical and concrete for your spiritual journey. We already noted this, but, but it says that, that we are elect exiles. That is, God has purposed us in exile. And then notice the language after that. It says that you are exiles who, is, who are foreknown by God the Father. That means that the love of God has been set upon you. It says that you are exiles who have been sanctified by the Spirit. That is, set apart for the, by the Spirit. You are exiles who have been sprinkled. That is, baptized by the blood of Jesus Christ. All of that is the language of covenant belonging. You see, you are no longer banished. Exile is not banishment. It is instead a marker of community. And it means that your exile is sifted through the grace of God and it no longer functions as a curse in your life, but now you live as exiles in blessing. Let me show you two ways that works. Number one, in place of our loneliness, God gives renewed intimacy. In place of our loneliness, God gives renewed intimacy. 
We said it earlier, but to live in exile is to feel alone. To live in exile is to feel outside of the bonds of deep connection with others. I want you just to think about it for a second. How is it that deep connection occurs in the first place? You know, we are a culture that, um, that uh, is known for yearning for connection and creating tons of way to connect, but really probably fairly inept at doing it very well. How does intimacy with anyone ever blossom? I love how C.S. Lewis says it. This is very simple. He describes it in his, uh, one of his essays on friendship. He said this is basically how every friendship in the world ever started. Someone looked at someone else and said, wait, you too? I thought I was the only one. Wait, you too? I thought I was the only one. And what is Lewis saying? He says that basically intimacy starts with shared connection. It's empathy. It's, it's the sense of having a common connection with someone else. And what the gospel of Jesus Christ says to you is that Jesus himself can come to you and he can sit with you. He can look at you at the deepest place of where you are, of who you are, in your pain and in your loneliness. He can look at you there. And he can say, me too. Friend, me too. You see, I understand you. And now you understand me. Don't gloss over this. This is so important because it means that one of the crucial ways that we connect with God is not in our highs, but in our lows. You know, religion's going to tell you that you've got to do so many things, get your attitude right, you know, have, be more enthusiastic, do certain things to connect with God, and yet the gospel says no. No, even, even when you feel forsaken by God, have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, where are you? Well, Jesus can look at you in that question and sit with you this morning and say, friend, me too. I know exactly how that feels. And I know that in our lows, especially in our lowest of lows, what we really want is our life to get fixed. We want what the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth. We want our loved ones back. We want our bodies healed. We want our dreams to come true. But short of that, short of that, what we need most is intimacy. Someone who can sit with us and be sad with us and weep alongside us and say, me too. That's what the Lord of heaven and earth can do for you, can do with you. He can deliver you from your loneliness by actually sharing in it. That's number one. The second thing I want you to see this morning is this, in place of our cultural marginalization. In the gospel, God gives renewed significance. In the place of cultural marginalization, God gives new significance, new importance. We said it early that to live in exile is to be removed from the center of cultural importance, power, and to be then sort of thrust to the fringe of your place. And you should know that never in history, I say it this way, that in history, when this has happened to the church, it has never, never, never hindered the work of God in loving and rescuing the world. Not once. And I'm not aware of it. You can certainly tell me if I'm wrong here. I'm not aware of anywhere in Scripture that God has said to His people, if you can just get to the point, the place of cultural importance, if you can just get to the cultural center, then you'll really be useful. What does He say? He says, be faithful. 
And sometimes, no doubt, God puts people there. He puts people in important positions. He puts Joseph there. He puts Esther there. He puts Nehemiah there. He puts Daniel there. They never asked for it. He never told them they had to be. It was never, ever the point. In fact, and I'm going to say this and expect some resistance here, okay? You can email me at mark.davis at pcpc.org. I'll say this. I think, okay, much of, our, much of our idolatry as Christians in our country today might be wrapped up in our drive to be important players in our culture. Not all of it, but some of it. Certainly I'm not saying don't act, be a good citizen. I'm just saying that that is never the intent, express will of God for you and I to be there. Consider this. Do you know how the early church exploded in Acts? It wasn't because people figured out ways to hobnob in the halls of power. The early church exploded in Acts through exile. Christians literally get, kept getting kicked out of their cities, and they had to go to new cities in an ever-widening expanse across the Mediterranean, and new converts were made, and the gospel reached new nations. Now, eventually that would reach back into powerful places, notably Constantine in the fourth century, but once again, never ever the point, never the goal. See the Apostle Paul, for example. If you ever get a chance, go read Paul's testimony in Philippians 3. He talks about just a sort of overview of his testimony. He says, you know, I was, before I met Jesus, I was doing okay. That's basically what he says. He says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, tribe of Benjamin. I was, I was doing well. And then I met him, and I increasingly ended up on the fringe of, of, of my place. So much so that by the end of his life, where was Paul? Paul was in a prison cell, and he did, you know, arguably his most important work for the kingdom of God. His legacy today was in that prison cell, writing letters to people like us. What does that mean? It just means that we need to embrace where God takes us, even if that is away from the cultural center. We don't need to be scared of it. We don't need to resent it but in humility and confidence that God is at work and that we get the privilege of joining in that work for the life of the world. For the life of the world. There's an old story about an Anglican bishop that I love. That he was poor, grew up poor in an isolated part of Argentina. And um, as a kid, his mother asked him to set the table for tea time guests. And so he began to set the table and he drops one of the plates the plate cracks, and so he goes outside of the village garbage heap, and he throws the plate out there, never to think about it again. Well, he becomes a bishop, and he's important. Comes into town, everyone shows up, because you don't want to miss church when the bishop is in town, right? Everyone comes to worship, and he's there, and a lot of fanfare around him, and he goes to serve communion, and uh, the plate that holds the bread is passed to him, and he looks down to bless the elements, the bread. And what does he see there? He sees that old, cracked, once-discarded plate. Someone from that poor church had rescued that plate. And that plate had been now used to serve the presence of Jesus to the people week after week after week. Jesus himself was being served to the world on a broken, discarded plate. I love that because I think it's a good reminder of our calling as the church. We sit here as broken people. Let's not make any bones about it. We are perhaps unwanted, even. Our goal, our calling is first to be near to Jesus. It's to be near to his presence, to abide in him, to live in intimacy with the one who was broken for us, 
the one whose blood was sprinkled on us, and then to serve him to the world, not coercively, not to regain power, but in love and humility wherever he sees fit. Friends, you're going to read the word exile over and over in 1 Peter. It is no longer a term of derision. It is now a term of deep and abiding purpose in your life. May his grace and his peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your kindness. Um, Lord, we thank you that you love us as broken people. We thank you, Father, that you have come near to us, that you can look at us in our, in our cynicism and all the places where um, we really look at and say, Lowe's, obstacles to connect with you, and you can say, me too, and that, um, Lord, those are places for new intimacy. We pray that you would give us that as a church, Father, and that you would make us not necessarily powerful people, Father, but faithful people, wherever you send us. Father, we pray that we might hold out Jesus to the world, believing in him firmly for ourselves, then holding him out to others, to our neighbors, to our loved ones, and to our enemies. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.